You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. I am uh, very pleased to welcome to the Sophia audience uh, Dr. Crispin Sartwell, who is the author of this wonderful new book. Oh, you have it also. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Coincidence. Uh, Entanglements, um, a system of philosophy, and we are going to spend, we're going to have two dialogue sessions talking about this book because, as you can see, it's not small. And you can also see all the dog ears that I've put in it to sort of... <laughs> right on. Now I'm convinced you read it, man. That's yeah, excellent. of course I read it. Um, um, Dr. Sarwell, why don't you do your, a brief in introduction of yourself so that, the, uh, so, so that the audience can know who you are before we get started. Well, I'm Crispin Sartwell. I teach at Dickinson College in Carlisle, PA. That's where I am right now in my office. Um, I guess I've written some books and uh, articles and such. Um, also write for the popular press quite a bit, uh, etc. Yeah, you, uh, you maintain a blog. Is that, what's the blog called? Eye of the Storm. Blogs.com. Um, we will uh, have, there's a link section, so we're going to have anything you want us to link to of yours, um, we can link to, um, as well as uh, if there's stuff that comes up in the conversation that you have interesting links for, we can link to that also. Excellent. Um, so, so I don't know Dr. Sawwell personally. Um, however, uh, when I was in graduate school, I used some of his work because uh, you've done a lot of work in aesthetics, which is the field that I worked in. Yeah, that was my initial field, my dissertation and so on, and most of my early publications, I suppose. Now, was your advisor Richard Rorty? Yeah. So, but he did, so he did a dissertation with you in aesthetics? Yeah, uh, it, it's, I guess um, it's, I, well, I, I wanted to work on Dewey's aesthetics, and that's really why I came to Virginia after my MA. Uh, and he was interested in that. And also, I guess I... I worked on some figures that I thought in a way he could make use of that maybe he hadn't so much like, uh, Nelson Goodman, uh, and E.H. Gombrich. Yeah. Uh, you know, both of them have a kind of constructivist, uh, view of perception and so on. And they, they run it through, uh, maybe an aesthetic or even art historical, uh, framework rather than through like the linguistic framework that Rorty was familiar with and working on. And so I think he kind of got, he was interested enough in that to at least uh, let me, you know, get going with him in the mid eighties. So, so, so anyway, so that I, I knew of your work before, before, uh, you know, well, a, a long time ago. And then I became aware of some of your public intellectual uh, stuff Um this is something we're going to get into in the second di dialogue, which is the political stuff. But I was interested in your political uh, writing in part because while I don't think you and I have the same orientation, it's I'm I'm in your orbit. Um, I'm 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 certainly more uh, libertarian than probably most people in the most of people in philosophy are. I'm certainly not a social democrat sort of. Uh, I've I, been I, through phases like that. I yeah. guess I've often voted libertarian. Actually, yeah, I know you're not one, but but you're more like one than you are like a social democrat. It seems agree. <laughs> um, but we're going to get to that in the politics section, which is awfully interesting. Um, but today, what we're going to talk about is some of the more uh, hardcore stuff. The more uh, so, so we're going to talk about ontology and talk about epistemology today. Um, 
but before we get to that, I want to I want to start with just much more at a general level. Um, you it says on the cover and after the main title it says a system of philosophy, which means you're creating an entire system. You're not just writing in one area. You're not just writing about one subject. Um, and given some of the influences that that are in the book. I would think you would be anti-systems. <laughs> so I'm, I was really interested in the book yeah. about your explanation of why you want to why you wanted to do an actual system, and also in this really interesting metaphor. And I guess maybe this will segue us over into the ontology about the threads and the knots, uh, the knots and the threads. So maybe you could go ahead and and and, and talk about those two things uh, by way of preliminary. Sure. Um, I mean, it's true, but right, and heroes that I whip out, you know, or that run throughout the book are people like Kierkegaard, uh, Thoreau, you know, J.L. Austin, uh, Blaise Pascal. Uh, these are not really systematizers, I suppose. No. In fact, you know, in, in many moments, such people pitted themselves. I mean, I should figure out some more, G.E. Moore, for example. Um, Austin certainly was anti-systematic. Yeah, that's um, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you look at Kierkegaard on Hegel, for instance, uh, it's it's Hegel systematicity is one of Kierkegaard's problems, one of many problems uh, that Kierkegaard had with Hegel. Um, and you know, in my own training, which you know was basically you know hardcore analytic at Hopkins in my MA. Me too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then uh, with Rorty. And neither of those are things that would. Uh, no, Rorty was very anti-systematic, yeah. especially towards the in his later. Uh, the, the further he went, the less system. I mean, he was Absolutely. already somewhat anti-systematic in philosophy in this mirror of nature, but as he went on, he became even more and more anti-systematic. So. Right, or anti-philosophical in general. Yeah, yeah. So, you know. so what? What? Why? Right. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> I guess you know, from the time I was a kid. I sort of wanted to play in that space, you know, where Kant played, where Hegel played. I mean, you know, to take the thing at its largest scope, like really to try to address, you know, the nature of the universe and the nature of value and all that. Like I had those ambitions and I, I even have some sketches that I wrote of such things in high school, you know. Um, wow, and you kept you have these. You, you I, I have some, stuff. yeah, I have some blank books that I in high school as an undergraduate. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, they were terrible uh mistakes, really. I mean, but um, but I don't know, I just I, I always wanted to play in that space. Now, I got a lot of misgivings about it from these sources and others, you know, but I was also working throughout that in a kind of reactionary mode, like I was, I would reject the rejection of philosophy in my professors often. Like I, I was interested, I tried to insist on being interested in these basic philosophical questions, even at moments where I couldn't defend even the question questions as formulations, you know, like what is truth? You know, if you, if you brought that to Richard Rorty, what is truth? He just roll his eyes, man. Or, you know, right. Um, and so in a way, like, I guess I call it like an anti-systematic system in some ways, but I think when you get down to it, it's fairly systematic. Um, you know, it's not the kind of thing that Hegel did a ground up, 
reestablishing human knowledge or something like that. It, it uses many presuppositions, but I guess like I just throughout my career or even life going back, like I always thought this is the project I was gearing up for. Like I wanted to, I was interested in every subdiscipline of philosophy. I was interested in almost every kind of philosophy, you know, whether it was uh, a historical period or, you know, geographical area, you know, Asian philosophy, for example, you know, or American, or I'm not one of these people that went analytic or continental. I mean, Rorty was a model for me on that. Yeah, that's one of the things that's very notable about the book is that the influences are pretty uh, are pretty ecumenical. I mean, there's, there's, there's yeah. not a lot of, I mean, East and West, as well as continental and analytic, ancient, modern. I mean, the breadth of it is incredible. I actually can't believe you've read all this i mean oh geez thanks man. no i'm serious I, it's very I mean, look, there's holes in my reading like mad and no one's more aware of that than me you know but, but very I, few people train the way we are i mean i was at the cuny graduate center in the 90s i mean it was yeah. all you know it was all philosophy of language i mean and, and you know logic and yes so you must have done a lot of that reading on your own that that wasn't stuff that was coming to you through your graduate program Completely. And, and like at Hopkins or at Virginia, which was also analytically oriented, uh, and even Rorty was analytically oriented. Yeah, of course he was. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I was reading secretly. Okay. I mean, I was devouring Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and whatever, Heidegger. By I mean, yourself? Because uh, that stuff's very hard. I mean, that's not easy. I, you know, I mean, you did, were you in a reading group or? or? No, you know, I... I I stumbled across Kierkegaard, for example. That was a big thing for me, was finding Kierkegaard. And I did, that happened to me in grad school, basically. And yeah, I just read it on my own. It's not totally unreadable, that stuff. Some, some of the stuff is pretty hard, I guess. Like, addressing Hegel on your own. You know, I'm, I, it's not that I didn't try, but uh, I'm not sure how much I got out of it. And also, I, I would say, though, that Rorty... You know, I took seminars in, on Heidegger with Rorty. Okay, so you uh, did have some you know, education in continental. Yeah. yeah, and I had some training. And I actually, you know, I tried to get professors who had any interest in that kind of stuff to, you know, discuss it or help me with it. But I didn't, I had, didn't have a lot of support for that, actually. So yeah. it, it mostly did happen on my own. My first job was at Vanderbilt, which was a... You know, is that a continental department, a continental yeah, inclined department, right? Yeah, well, it was a, you know, they, they, they said they were pluralist. Uh, there were some eminent continentalists there like John Salas and Charles Scott. And I even took some of their seminars and things like that, you know. Um, I just, and I found it very difficult in the sense that everyone wants to line you up on a side. I mean, it's quite like Democrats and Republicans. Like yeah. they, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, they just, and, and I, there was a war. At it's very partisan. It's very yes, partisan. Exactly. And, and, and you're suspicious as soon as you even express an interest or like in the other side. I mean, they yeah. both regard each other as kind of evil and betraying philosophy or whatever. It was really raging in the eighties, man. I don't know how bad it is now. Still pretty bad, actually, I think. Even within the tradition, it was pretty partisan. I mean, I remember the big big schism in my department was between Kat, Jerry Katz and Jerry Fodor because they had both been good old Chomskyans. And then Katz, <laughs> Katz like, went, went, had like a nervous breakdown and became a Platonist. <laughs> and Fodor just forever just like disdained him afterwards. And it was yeah. just a whole – it's just like – It's too bad. Like freaking children or something. I mean, it's just really yeah. weird – 
<laughs> I've been in many a war like this, man, and I think it's it's kind of messed up my career in some ways, you know. Um, but yeah, you I, had a whole drama at Dickinson that we're not even going to talk about. That that I, yeah. if anybody wants to know, he blogged about it. So you can, you can go read. We're going to read his blog and talk about. It. You're probably so sick of that story, right? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me ask. Let me ask you this. So in terms of the system, yeah. I actually found the book difficult. Um, not difficult because it's hard to read. It's very readable. But huh. half the time I was wondering whether I agreed with you or not because you, it's a very it's a system, but the parts of it are – none of the parts of it are typical system parts. And so, I mean, you're a realist, but not in the way that most people mean, right? I mean, you're a – you're 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 a monist and a metaphysical monist, but it's pretty complicated. The monism—it's not the sort of nice and neat reductive physicalism, right? That's um, true. Uh, and so, so yeah, it's systematic, but it's not systematic like a Cartesian or like a Kantian or like it's systematic in that you cover all the areas. Right, and I hope that you know the positions are interconnected in various ways. You know. I mean, m among other things with this, uh, you know, kind of master metaphor of, uh, as you say, knots and tangles. Yeah, and, I want you to get to that in but, a minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, and I, I mean, this another feature of me, I think, is that I really don't accept most of the positions of most of the philosophers in history. Right. Like, I... I think, I hope it's fundamentally original. I mean, you know. Oh, well, I, that's that you know, for sure. And, you know, um, so um, I don't know. But it's not, it's not foundationalist in a Cartesian right. sense, that's for sure, or even like in a sort of Hegelian way. I mean, I guess a lot of people would regard it as basically the foundations are dogmatic in the sense that, you know, for example, I am really concerned to defend the existence and reality of the real world and so on. Yeah, that's something I want to push you on. Um, yeah. Um, um, and, and, it's and, one of know, the places where I found the view subtle. I mean, you know, it's like you're an anti-representationalist, but you're not a Wittgensteinian, right? And, okay. and typically the later Wittgenstein is one of the paradigmatic anti-representational philosophies, the investigations, right? I mean, in terms of – and so I'm really interested to get out from you where you're – you know – and, and I like the fact that you don't want to occupy map positions, right? You know, you're like, right. okay, those people are, you use all these people, but you don't ultimately identify with anybody. It seems I hope to me. not. Um, so, I'm so, pretty close on Thoreau. <laughs> I feel, yeah, but. The people yeah, I identify I, with the most actually strike me as the least sort of standard philosophy, you know, banner holders. I mean, um, um, that's what's really one of the really nice things about it. All right, so let's get to this thing with the threads. And so, okay. And so this, this is, this ties into the beginning with the ontology, the, the metaphysics more generally. Um, um, talk through a little bit the metaphor of the thread and the knots, and then maybe tie that to your basic metaphysics, which is a, uh, you, you claim is a, a, a naturalistic one. I do claim that, I guess. Right. right. I, I'm I'm gonna push, like that's that's one of the things I'm going to push you on. So. <laughs> that's a very problematic, uh, you know, <laughs> difficult concept. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. In ontology, I guess, as I say, my, my first commitment is, is to what I would call like a one plane ontology. Maybe that's what you were calling monism. Right. Uh, like there's only one sort of thing. Uh, so that everything potentially is accessible from anywhere. That is, everything exists on the same plane of being and everything 
you know, is in potential relation to everything that exists is potentially in relation or is actually in relation, infinitely rich relation to everything else that exists. Uh, So, you know, I think of one plane, like what I call one plane ontologies, like idealism is an example. Everything is mental, you know, okay. Like that you have to (laughs) work through that a little bit, a lot. Right. Uh, or materialism. And I do associate my position with materialism. Um, you know, everything is, that exists is a physical thing. However, we're going to construe that. It's a very difficult question. So my, and my metaphor is that, all right, we're in, in a universe of individuals um, that are in infinitely rich relations with one another. And I think about this in terms of, say, knots in a skein or tangle. Um, so an individual is, whether it's us or, you know, is this cup or whatever. Um, Here, here's two individuals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, All right, so talk me through. Use these. Talk me yes, through. Okay. So each of those things is in, in the metaphor is, is a knot within a physical reality in which everything is connected to everything else. But furthermore, I don't make individuals ontologically fundamental. Like I think of them by analogy to knots in a, in a skein. That is that, you know, there's, there's the piece coming in, the piece that's going out. Often it's very ambiguous what is and what is not part of the same knot. And ultimately, I think that all individuals need to be defined or conceived in terms of their relations. Um, so, so give me that. Tell me, explain yes. that. Here's a cell phone. Here's a cup. Right. How is each individual explained in terms of its relations, let's say, to one another or to anything else? That's in- right. Well, even those two individuals notice that they have they're the only things that have the spatial relations they have to one another okay mm-hmm. so uh i mean to there there's there's other ways of trying to individuate a coffee cup you could start talking about the intrinsic or so-called intrinsic properties of a, of a cup um you know you could talk about the markings on the surface and like this cup is uh on the other hand let's say that's a mass produced cup for instance um it shares all those properties with thousands of cups, perhaps. Right. So, so, so an Aristotelian account of this cup, many of the, many of the so-called causes are going to be shared by its yes. formal and even material causes are going to be shared by everything that's a cup, right? Right, exactly. So in terms uh, of distinguishing it as an individual, yes. you think the relation, the specific yes. relations to other things is what helps... Right, and it's a, it's a infinite. It's in infinite relations. It's in those both those objects are in relation to you. They are the only objects that stand in the spatial relations to you that they stand in right now. And then, likewise, throughout the room you're in, you know, there's hundreds, thousands, you know, or <laughs> you know, almost infinitely many individuals in that room of one sort or another, and each of them is distinguished by its relations to all the others to the point of multiple infinities or whatever. So my my idea is actually that if you seal entities off into like, you know, their essential or intrinsic properties, um, you you treat them as Aristotelian substances or whatever. uh, You actually lose what's distinctive about them. Um, 
And okay, so that the more essentially itself something is, this is this is just a paradoxical formulation, the less itself it is. Like, and I think this is true of human minds and etc. Like we are and and through each moment that any individual persists, it enters into a richer and more complex set of relations with everything else that exists and becomes more individuated in virtue of those accumulating relationships. Right. right. Uh, now, so I, I like the, the knot and uh, string metaphor works fairly well for that. Like individuals are real in my opinion, but they are, they are to be defined or individuated in terms of their relations as a, a knot in terms of the string running into it and the string running out of it, okay. um, you know, et cetera. So let's talk, let's talk for a minute about, let's separate this out. So I want to address the, the, the realism and then I want to address the materialism. Um, um, so let's, let's talk about the realism first. Um, so one of the, and you, and you, you go through this in the, in the book, I mean, um, um, and that is one of the things that you reject is a kind of argument against realism by way of a kind of conceptual relativity, right? It seems okay. like you argue against it. So, so, you, so sort of a sort of an onto, a Quinean uh, uh, conceptual, therefore ontological relativity, right? Um, and so, I guess one of the things I would ask you is, um, in addition to the relation between this individual and that one. As, as sort of identifying each discrete individual object. Yes. Is there not also involved a frame of reference, a system of counting, a method of individual, a principle of individuation, such that I could treat these as a myriological sum? Yes. In which case, I would deny that there are discrete objects, right? Yes. That, there's, that there are two discrete objects. So in other words, why... Why does why are you not impressed sufficiently by that question that 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 fact let's call it to at least if not soften the realism problematize the realism a little bit Okay well I do think you know when we experience objects um we we need some kind of representational schemata to do that right um and it's I think it's quite true that you could count those things as two objects or you could count them as one object, you know, I mean, so, and I think like, for example, you know, a tree could be an individual or a tree could be a amazing, like amazingly complex swarm of individuals right. or a tree could be not even an individual right. part of a system, part of a grove, part of a forest. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I do think like, we would not really be able to experience the world without some such uh, schema, you know, whether it's a linguistic structure or a kind of set of almost pictorial categories or so on uh, and, and such. Um, on the other hand, I also think that <clears throat> those are, are representational schemes in general have to be responsive to the antecedent way the world is. Okay, that's interesting. So that's interesting. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. So 
realism generally, and if you don't agree with this, please say so, but realism, I thought, was, was a view that has two parts. One is that the world exists independently of minds and frames of reference. Yes. And two, that there is a way the world is independently of minds and frames of reference. Now, the problem is that the second seems problematic. Right. And without the second, the first gives you a kind of Kantian numeralism, which also seems problematic. So uh, how are you playing that, those problems? Right. Well, there is a way the world is, except that it's infinitely rich and complicated, and any representational schema is radically uh, inadequate to it. So is the world all the ways? Yes. All the ways that it could potentially be represented is the way the world is. All the ways it could be accurately represented is the way the world is. But doesn't that kind of not... beg the question? If Once you add accurate, doesn't that kind of mess it up? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it leaves you without solutions to certain problems, or it leaves you obliged to try to solve certain problems in another uh, way or something like that. But look, I mean, I'll, I'll just start with a naturalistic picture of the world. All right. Let's say that we evolved on this planet in, in, in an environment. All right. And basically, for example, our perceptual apparatus, and that might include you know, our perceptual schemes or our, our uh, representational schemes and so on, um, evolve fundamentally to help us, you know, adjust to what's actually out there. All right. So, for example, I think like, say, take, a, take the Kantian view that we, um, you know, that space and time, as far as we can possibly know, let's say, are forms of our sensibility rather than, you know, realities in the universe, right? Well, I think that that's a profoundly anti-naturalistic, I mean, that, that view, I mean, it's completely incompatible with a kind of Darwinian picture of uh, animal life or human life, for example. And I think that if we were creatures imposing things like space and time on what on the noumena or something or whatever the hell there is or, or not, we'd just be extinct. Okay. Yeah. Like we have to respond to the real world. That's what our perceptual apparatus is for. That's ultimately what our representational, it's at least one thing or the fundamental thing that our representational schemata are for. Um, and, you know, so I, I, I mean, in general, I would say this about philosophy and the history of Western philosophy. It gives way, way too much credit to us. Like, we are not making this thing up. Okay? Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, to be fair, don't you think, though, that, I mean, Kant, in that sense, was a sort of a corrective, though, to an excessively blank slate world, you know, passive conception of perception, you know, which we know from perceptual psychology is not true, right? Um, um, I, I was under the impression that, that we've known at least for, for since the 60s, if not longer, that, that perceptual psychology, is, by psychology tells us it's a pretty active cognitive process. It's not simply okay. your blank mind being filled with impressions yeah. that are pouring in from the world. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, Again, that activity occurs within a natural environment, and if it has a purpose, it's for the sake of uh, adapting to that environment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And also, I, I don't, I think you don't want to, all right, like Gombrich and Goodman, who I mentioned earlier, very heavy on this idea 
that we see what we expect to see, for example. I mean, this is part of the 60s, that 60s psychology that you're talking about, like the expectations form experiences. That's right, yeah. Okay, but what that misses is the massive fact that expectations are often violated, okay? Like, you know, continuously yeah. violated. Yeah. And that if you try to sit there and expect the experiences you're going to have in the next 24 hours, First of all, you'd just be hallucinating. You'd be mentally ill. And second of all, you couldn't do it worth a damn, okay? There's just going to be massive influx of unconstructed uh, so far. Uh, well, I, it's, maybe it's constructed by the time it gets, you know, fully into your awareness or something like this. But, you know, so, I mean, I actually quote some, like, Zen and Taoist people along these lines. It's like, Okay, you didn't expect to hear that dog bark, did you? Right, and there it is. Yeah, uh, you know, or I, I and so, and, and like I say, I think that we far overrate our own contribution to our own experience, you know, and we far overrate often. In the and this is a kind of a illness in the history of Western philosophy, we overrate our constructive abilities with regard to the environment that we are experiencing. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I think that's profoundly anti-naturalistic and profoundly implausible and profoundly false to people's everyday experience as well. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, I agree with everything you've just said for the most part. Um, and it almost feels to me like the, 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 the weird philosophy positions arise in part out of what seem like pretty intuitive problems that just just boggle the mind for solution. And so it's sort of, you know, I was going like to argument or yeah, yeah. So like the other, the other problem, the other sort of rel, uh, the other sort of relativity, uh, you know, we talked about relativity to frames of reference, but the other sort of relativity that's actually the earlier version, which is the enlightenment version is sort of perceptual relativity. And, and, there is something, you know, when you talk about the way the world is independently of our perception and conception, the fact is that a bat experiences a very different world from the one we do. So when we when we meditate well, or no, reflect no, upon, he doesn't let, let's say, let's he doesn't see he doesn't see the way we do, right? Right, but he experiences the same world. Right, but the the, yeah. the first half of the the second half of the realism, there is a way that that world is, right? Well, that seems to be problematized by the fact that there's an awful lot of ways that the world appears, and how would you determine which one of those right. ways is the way the world actually is, right? <laughs> that right. seems well, a fair question, right? Yeah, okay. Well, look, the way the world is, look, you're, you're not going to be able to write it down or something like that. Uh, you know, like there's no, all right, like you know, there's no, fair enough. Yeah, that's a good answer. There, there's no exhaustive description of the world. I mean, this is sort of the way Putnam maybe describes realism. Like there is a correct or scientific perhaps description of the entire world or like a Carnap view where, you know, the world is this, is like the set of all true sentences or something. That's like why that. I asked you earlier: Is the way yeah. the world is all the ways it could could be in a sense, right? I mean, well, it's all the ways <laughs> it is, and every representational schema is 
radically limited in the face of that, of the infinitely infinite ways the world actually is. I mean, one example I give is from art history, um, Heinrich Verflin. Yeah, principles of art history, yeah. Yeah. Um, So he- Painterly and linear. Which yes, talk exactly. About in the book. Yes, so exactly. please talk through that. That's a great. That's a great example. Talk through that. Yeah. So uh, I mean, maybe I should even dig up the passage. But um, so Verflin distinguishes Renaissance and Baroque art in part uh, by the fact that re- Renaissance art is linear in orientation and Baroque is painterly. And so in, you know, typically in Renaissance, you might think of Botticelli or Durer. These are central examples for him. You know, you outline the form with a dark line or whatever. Uh, And, you know, and that's how you create objects and distinguish them from one another. Yes. And from from the background as well. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, You know, and then. Uh, a more like uh, Rembrandt is a paradigm example of a painterly painter. Uh, and he builds forms from within, you know, you actually see often the handwork that leads to the, to the form. Uh, maybe there's no outline at all of the form. And what Verflin says is these are alternative ways of depicting reality. And they both can give a perfect, he says, a perfect picture of reality, even though they are sort of, you know, wildly different uh, representational schemata. Now, what I would emphasize, and, and so in both cases, I think, you can create an actu- accurate picture in either, you, you can create an accurate picture in either system. Um, and each will reveal aspects of reality, if that's the goal of the painter, say, uh, that the other omits or occludes, all right? Neither of them is false, you know? And neither of them is enough to give you the whole truth. And then what I would further add to this, that Verflin, I think, doesn't sufficiently emphasize, is the continuity of these systems with one another and the comprehensibility of one to the people who experience it the other way, or the pain, you know, like Rembrandt can understand Raphael, okay, perfectly well. In fact, he's influenced by Raphael. Part of what he's doing perhaps is rejecting a Raphael That's really linear schema. Yeah, right? you, 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 you almost sound to me a little bit like, um, a little bit like Davidson and in, uh, in on the very idea of a conceptual scheme, where he says, look, you know, if these different varying ways of looking at the world are not translatable into one another, there's no even reason for thinking it is a view of the world, right? I mean, right, I mean true. right, right. Yes. It almost sounds like you're saying, in a sense, look, I mean, to even call something an alternative way of looking at the world is to say that it is in some way translatable into the one that you're speaking from, right? I mean, is, is, is well, not necessarily. I mean, they're comp. So the linear and parallel are comprehensible. In terms of one another, you think? In ter- for, for one another, but you can't translate linear into parallel exactly. In a sense, though, you can, right? You could, you could talk, that's why I, I said this in response to you saying that Rembrandt could be a rejection of certain elements of, of right? right. So, so, so the famous example with the, with the easy tr- translatability is 
Putnam's in many phases of realism, his micro universe with the three balls and you know, how many balls are there, he says. Okay. And you know, well, on way one way of counting there's three, on another way of counting there's one, on another way because of depending yes. on whether you right. But now all these different ways are in a sense Tr comprehensible in terms of the other ways, right? Well, they're at least compatible with one another. Yeah. yeah. Right. So the idea that a tree is one thing and the idea that a tree is many things, or that three balls are one thing and three balls are three things, those are not contradictory. Right. I mean, this is, I would insist on that, right? So, yeah. 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 And so we're not, I don't think we're forced, and this is a difference maybe in my realism than some other versions. I don't think we're forced to decide questions like that. Is there only one thing? Yes. Is there, are there three things? Yes. You know, and there's nothing, there's not even the tension there if you ask me, right? That's typical of our experience at all times. You know, is this room one thing or is it, you know, many, many things, all the objects. And the answer to that is yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so this is a subtle, I mean, this is, but this is, if you think about this, a pretty hard position to articulate. So it's like, there is a way the world is, yes, but there is no unique specification of it, but that's not a Kantian numinalism. Right. That's right. It's like generic stuff, right? It's not that, right? right? Um, well, they're infinitely, it, it, the, <laughs> the way the world is, is infinitely infinite. And all our resources for addressing it are excru excruciating yeah. finite. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, now, I also think that other, you know, there could be false systems, right? Or systems that are just, just lead you. So how does a system, how can a system be untrue to reality unless it is actually logically contradictory? How, how why, in other words, why does this not allow for the reality of fictionalist systems? Well, because such things don't exist, man. Like, you know. Yeah, but uh, that's cheating. <laughs> to say that's cheating. <laughs> well, look, this maybe is where my dogmatism comes in in a way, too. It's like, I'm just going to insist. Like, uh, you know, so th there are potentially maybe infinitely many possible accurate or truth revealing representational schemes. But there are also infinitely many that just go awry. Yeah. You know, like if I say this room is one thing, that's not, you know, but if I say that, uh, this room is in Paris or something like that, I'm, I'm just wrong, all right? So, and it's not a matter of what's happening in our minds. I mean, you know, that's not what fixes whether my, you know. So is there, an, is there, is there an empiricist element to this then for you? sort of a Quinean at some point there has to be contact with what he calls, you know, sort of the observation sentences. I mean, I mean, well, some... I'm going to go, I'm going to go with contact with stuff, you know, yeah. like, uh, yeah, I go big on like GE Moore or. Yeah. Same we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd say like, yeah, it's grounded in contact with material reality. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's, all right, let's talk about the material. I, I re okay. I'm realizing that I had the sinking realization that we could probably talk for about four hours. And so I'm going to... I'm gonna you go for it, man. I, don't I'm know. Gonna, I know, but the audience will not tolerate yeah. it. So, I mean, so um, let, let's move on quickly. Just let's talk about the materialism very briefly. You may have a okay. pretty, pretty easy way of disposing of this. So I actually just, just coughed up something pretty brief in my own, in my own uh, online public intellectual project that this magazine i edit and um Agor? yeah yeah and yeah, yeah. and and 
it's funny. My problem with materialism is not the one that most people. So most people that they they get all hung up on abstract objects and things like you know numbers and. But I have a sort of Those more basic. Questions. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I'm not I'm not suggesting that they're not. I mean, yeah. but I have a more basic problem, and that is, it seems to me that it's almost impossible to give a materialist account of uh, a lot of social objects um, and social facts. I mean, you know, the law that violation of which caused me to get a citation for having expired tags, mm -hmm. that law exists. <laughs> and I know very well it exists because I, it, it cost me money, right? right. Um, and yet it's not, a, it's not a material object. And even if, even if you say that, well, it arises out of all of these uh, sets of agreements between people, I would argue that the thing that arises is not a material, even if you view all those things as material objects, which I would also question a lot of that. Um, <clears throat> now, this doesn't mean I want to invoke any sort of spiritualism or right. you know, Cartesianism, but I, as a purely negative thesis, it seems to me yes. materialism is a pretty hard on metaphysics to push if you really take into account all the stuff that exists. So how do you deal with social reality in your yeah. materialism? Well, and I guess this is typical of a lot of materialists or nominalists of various kinds. I kind of write a check, okay? Write a blank check in a way, um, sadly. Institutional uh, right. facts, so to speak. How right. do you deal with those? Within okay, so, you know, I, all right, so in dealing with law, for instance, okay, I'm going to, first of all, it's important to me to demystify objects like that, like uh, particularly that one, as an anarchist, let's say. Yeah. Um, so now, okay, is it an abstract object? Look, this is a mystery for anyone, I think, actually. All right, so what the hell is a law? You know, I mean, I think that arises on almost any, uh, that, that raises puzzles on almost anybody's ontology. Yeah. Um, is it an abstract object? Okay. Is it a textual object? Um, is it a set of social practices, you know, say are involved in enforcement of, of that and, or all of the above? And these are difficult questions no matter what. But I am going to start with like say, okay, first of all, part of what a law is may be squiggles on a piece of paper, you know, ink stains on a piece of paper. All right. Maybe procedures, you know, again, ultimately I'm going to have to promise some kind of reduction. Not, I don't is like a that. law a knot like <laughs> this cup is? Yes. See, that's yeah, what that, I, that's, that's what, what I, that's what I, now I'm not, I don't want you to saying. try to now, convince me. It's an immensely complicated object. Okay. Give me some, uh, almost a graphical okay. representation. What kind of okay. a knot is a law? Yes. Okay. Um, it's a series of events such as occur in a legislature, a series of texts and reproductions of texts, a series of sound waves coming out of people's mouths. Uh, it's an incredibly complex uh, set of physical events like where the cop pulls you over and says, son, you know, blah, 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 here's a ticket, you know, uh, you know it's your check that goes back you know, or whatever. I'm not sure what the exact limits of it are, but I, you know, I realized that to say that it's a material object doesn't help very much. And, you know, all the work comes after that. 
And then also maybe a lot of people are not going to find that satisfactory and that it leaves something, something's very difficult to, uh, you know, to describe, but I, it's an immense scatter of physical objects and events, including perhaps maybe even neurological events. Okay. Uh, in the mind. So is it a knot or is it a kind of grouping of knots? I mean, yes. I was almost wondering whether, because I think the most natural way to describe these, I mean, this is one of the things that it seems to me a Wittgenstein forms of life kind of view handles the best. And I'm almost wondering whether on a view like yours, forms of life are in a sense clusters of knots. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to, that I'm are happy. engage in activity. Yes. I mean, also do the, yes. are the not, how do you characterize activity <laughs> on the knots view? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, knots are changing, right? Knots change, they wear out, you know, if you start pulling them tight, you know, maybe they unravel completely or maybe they, you know, become more, uh, yeah. you know, intrinsically connected or something. Um, <laughs> and, and the question of whether something is a knot or like a scatter of knots or a network of knots or a gigantic fabric or something like that or a macrame thing or something like that. In a way, those are the kind of things that do have to be fixed conventionally to some extent. Uh, so to call a law, which I'm describing as this immense scatter of physical events and objects, I'm just kind of insisting or pounding the desk and saying they are physical or whatever, you know. Um, it, is that to say it's a knot like this cup? It's not a knot exactly like this cup is a knot, but it's, you know, it's a vast scatter of knots. And guess what? You could call that a knot. I mean, the, the, yeah, you can make a knot out of a knot. You can make a knot out of knots. I mean, right. I mean, right. Exactly. I, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's, a, that's the strength of the metaphor, right? You just keep trying. Is it one knot? Is it thousands yeah. of knots? You know? Yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. know. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't. I, I wasn't. You know, I don't raise it to be difficult. It's. It's. It seems to no, me that this. No, yeah. bewildered, and and I really realize it's a it's a terrible difficulty for any kind of materialist position. Yeah, and that philosophers really seem to neglect a lot. I mean, I mean, in the sense that I would argue that the world of social objects as institutional facts is the primary world we operate in and occupy. In other words, we, we, right. we deal with them as much as we deal with these. Right. And I disagree. <coughs> I disagree. Now, that's now, that's interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. Why do you disagree right. with that? I, well, I think certainly social connections and uh, social practices and institutions are central to our experience. Okay. But I don't think they're any more, and this is kind of my anti-humanism, I guess. Like, I don't think they're any more central to our experience or they're any, they, they form our world any more than, you know, a material extra human reality. And furthermore, I don't think you can have any social practices. Bruno Latour is wonderful on this. Uh, I don't think you can have any social practices at all without uh, non-humans involved at every possible stage. Okay? Yeah, we well, that's true. Yes. Of yeah, course. We can't even con yes. communicate with yeah. one another. Yeah. And I, the, the, what worries me about this is that we then sort of cut off. We say we live in a social world. We live in social practices, you know, language games or whatever, however we want to describe that institutions and so on. And then we just sort of cut off the non-human from that. We like live in a human world, but the human world is incomprehensible without a much wider 
material framework that's involved at every stage and in every act of communication, in every act of every institution, in every social practice continuously. All right. So like, I don't think we occupy a social world any more than or in opposition to an external material world. Yeah. Nor do I think the social world is in principle different than that material world. Like it proceeds by material sets of events. Uh, and I will like sort of gesture at the idea of social institutions and practices as vast scatters of physical objects and events, you know? Well, I guess, I guess what I was thinking of was something along the lines more of sort of the, the seller's distinction between the scientific and the manifest image. I mean, it seems to me that if you think of your daily interactions, um, so much of them involve intentionality and normativity, right? Um, yes. um, whether it comes down to epistemic practices or um, moral interactions or, or political interactions or all the rest of them. And I guess I, I, I've always thought that, 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 that I agree with sellers that the scientific, the manifest image cannot be reduced to the scientific image and that only in one sense is the scientific image more fundamental. Um, um, and in a certain way, it's not more fundamental because without the manifest image, you would never even engage in the science right. pursuit of science. And the scientific image always winds up being interpreted in terms of the manifest image. Okay. And so that's, I guess, why I thought, I thought that, that things like intentionality and, and the institutional facts that we're talking about, the social world that gets created, are ontologically basic in much of our life activity interaction so on and so forth okay that's, that's what i was true. getting at that's quite true and i have to say that there's a distance between like my fundamental ontology and then and a movement into the social and and the social in everyday life and the importance like i i realize there's a huge gap that i'm failing to fill in moving from like a basic materialist ontology to social practices. And again, like I'm sort of just writing a check there. But what I want to say is we need to put these things into relation with one another. We, we've separated these things, the human mm. and the external to the human, far too long, far too, seri uh, uh, you know, far too thoroughly. And that that's a problem in the whole of Western thought, really. Yeah. Like that separation. I also want to say about the scientific and manifest image, which I do work on a little bit in the book. Um, I think these are perfectly compatible, right? Like, uh, you know, so that, uh, that this desk is a swarm of atoms and that, you know, it is a surface for writing on or whatever, you know, stacking up books on. Um, but it's also your property. It's also your property. Yeah. And well, if I broke in your house and took it, I'd get arrested, yeah. right? <laughs> well, I'm at my office, so I don't know, man. They, they can take it back, I guess. But, uh, uh, but all those things have to be compatible if they're all true, right? Uh, and like I, what I say about the scientific image, for example, is that finding out that this thing is a swarm of atoms, it might be surprising. Uh, but it doesn't, it, it, it's also, it doesn't tell you that it's not solid. It only elucidates the meaning of solidity that mm. we the meaning of what it shows us more about what we already meant when we called something solid. Yeah. You often yeah. hear people say like, ha ha, this chair isn't solid after all, or something like that, because we just proved it's mostly empty space. And you're going like, yeah, that is a little surprising, but you definitely didn't prove the chair is not solid or else I would have just, you know, 
floated right through it. Yeah. Or something yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I appreciate your, um, you know, it's interesting. On the one hand, you're right that certainly since the Enlightenment, there's been this kind of humanist turn in philosophy that tried to rewrite the world in terms of our representation of it. Yes. But I also... Profoundly I, incompatible with science. Yes, and, and I think that and I, those are some really strong parts of the book when you, when you sort of push that. But I guess in part my resistance to the materialism you're doing is in reaction to a more more recent trend, probably since the Second World War, really, in analytic philosophy. This kind of, in my view, very crude, simplistic, reductive materialism or eliminativist materialism yeah. that, to my mind, just completely uh, runs, you know, it's completely gives short shrift to the very rich social fabric we occupy. And I, I, it's, I agree. I agree. You're just not going to give a neuroscientific account of. I'm sorry. You're Completely, just not, I, I right. absolutely <laughs> agree with that. And that's yeah. my, my my instinctual reaction is against that. And maybe it just has to do that I was educated in a department that's so so heavily oriented this way. Right. But when you say what you say, I see that too. It's like, yeah, of course, there's there's an overly humanist bent to the way we're doing metaphysics, and 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 so yeah. But, I, I, but it was an important cure. <laughs> Or, uh, you know, and, you know, and I, I take a lot of that, like, sort of social constructionism very seriously. I know you do. I, yeah, I mean, the I book, you do. Yeah. yeah, I got it from a, do a dose of it from Rorty, but also in Wittgenstein or, you know, Foucault yeah. or people like that. Uh, and I, yeah, I don't want to neglect that. And I, I'm hoping that it is compatible with an underlying materialism that is nothing, I guess, like this reductive materialism. Like, you know, so I don't think that, you know, um, like Higgs bosons are more real than lamps, right. you know, or that, or that it, it's, it's worthwhile to reduce a lamp to Higgs bosons, right? Not any more than it is to reduce, you know, Higgs bosons to, you know, a whole bunch of Higgs bosons to a lamp or something like that, you know, <laughs> right, right, but right. you know, this, right. I don't know. So let's, let's do, um, epistemology. Um, okay. um, um, on our tour, of, of this this vast and fascinating book that you've written. Um, I have to say also, I don't know how one does a project like this. I mean, did, is this like accumulation or <laughs> did you, was this out of, I mean, have you been accumulating this or because I, I couldn't even know how to set about a task with writing something like this. Well, uh, it does. It is a bit of an anthology of my ideas and stuff over 30 years or whatever. And even does incorporate to some extent texts that were generated in that period. And, you know, throughout the whole thing, my whole career, I guess I've been thinking it would eventuate in something like this. So you, the work you've been doing in the, let's say, last few decades, have you, did you view it at the time as per building the pieces that were going to be the system? Yes. Okay, good. Because otherwise <laughs> I would have said, geez, man, you, you, I don't know how you did that one. All right. Not that things don't uh, change. <laughs> and not that it didn't take me a long time to write the book. All right. It's not just like a collection of papers or something like that. At no, all. it's certainly not. Uh, yeah. It's, so, it's, it, you know, I took 10 years or so writing it too. You know what I mean? Uh, but I definitely thought, you know, like when I was doing aesthetics, I was thinking in terms of how this plays in, a, in an ontology or, you know, or what ontological framework this is coming out of. Then I, you know, I did a bunch of work in epistemology. And yes, I, I implicitly, at least from the very beginning, I sort of, and it's changed. Like I thought I had a picture of the whole thing and I was going to 
you know, peg in different bits until it accumulated into a, a more elaborate embodiment yeah. of that picture. Yeah. 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 Um, so the epistemology, there's sort of, there's two major things that, 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 that stood out to me that, that um, I figured we could talk about. So first is <clears throat> your sort of, your, your perceptual direct realism. Um, um, that is that you think that we directly perceive things in the world. We don't perceive them through the mediation of representations. Right. Um, and then the second is your, your, view that knowledge is simply true belief and that we don't requ that we don't require epistemic warrant um, um, that is or also known as justification yes so let's let's um, let's go through both of those okay. um, um, but let's let's start with so let's start with the direct realism um, <clears throat> why don't you state a little bit what your view is and, and how you came to it the main, okay. the main road to it, so to speak, because <laughs> you can't do it from a lot of things, but the main road True. to it. Well, okay, so um, even when I got to grad school in, at Hopkins in the early 80s, I was referring to myself as a bonehead realist. Like I, I, I yeah, like I'm, I'm just, I'm here to defend the real world, man, from every encroachment. Like the real world is real, man. It's real, baby. It's real. You know, right. every time any philosophy professor or text like seemed to, eat into that or qualify it, I'd, I'd go into my bonehead realist thing. Now, the, okay, so, and when I got to Rorty, I mean, I spent years arguing with this, arguing about this with Rorty, okay? And when I started out, I was a representational realist, all right? In other words, and, and like my dissertation was on, basically on realism in painting. And my, and I, my goal was, I'm going to show you that pictures can be realistic. Some pictures more closely resemble <laughs> what they are pictures of than others. And then, now, then I was going to pull back into theory of perception and tell you, guess what? We have, you know, there can be realistic pictures of this real world. And Rorty destroyed me on this. I mean, he, he just year after year showed me like this wasn't going to work out. But didn't you know he was going to, I mean, this is the guy who wrote philosophy in the mirror of nature for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> I never had a lot of respect for anybody in a way. Like I, I definitely, you know, walked into Rorty's office like, all right, I'm your equal and I'm here to kick your ass too. Yeah. And I got my ass kicked. Okay. Like I thought, like, if you could show that Vermeer was more realistic than, uh, than a Picasso, that would be the good, a good start or something, yeah. but no, it didn't work out at all. So, and then it took me years after that of reflection to ch come to a view, okay, I'm going to have to abandon, as Rorty did in his own way, this, you know, this representational picture of mine completely. Like, that's where the problem is arising. That's where we lost the world. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so, I mean, I've slowly been trying to come up with a different version i guess i would i would say okay i could say that perception for me is not making pictures in the mind or something mm -hmm. like that uh perception ought to be understood fundamentally on the model of ingestion or respiration dude that's fascinating so, you describe perceptual modalities as holes in the body yes that the physical world enters into yes which exactly. is just which 
Stuff is vaguely dirty somehow, but <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but given oh, what I knew of your work, I figured yeah. it was on purpose, right? <laughs> well, it wasn't an accident, you know. I uh, say like, yeah. We're, Every time I see something, I'm getting <laughs> fucked, right? I mean, it's just like, <laughs> yeah. Or I mean, I've I've definitely tried the sex metaphor, but I've also tried like you know back in my little days as a baby Nietzschean or whatever, I was I was working on impalement, you know, like but perceiving the world as like being impaled or. <laughs> Yeah, that's okay. amazing. Things so, like that. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit, not so metaphorically. Um, yeah. um, um, in what way is perception more like being penetrated, all joking aside, as opposed to making a picture? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, just if you get a basic physiological description of what's happening in vision or in hearing or in smell, um, you know, you're ha it's a causal interaction in which actual material stuff, I mean, again, material is a difficult... Uh, I'm not going to push you on that. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll, it, we'll it, allow for both matter and energy and material. Yeah, okay, right. good. Uh, right. <laughs> so, right. You got, you got um, you know, so you got light reflecting off an object <coughs> and you got holes in your face. And, you know, the light is waving into those holes and then setting off a series of processes in, in your body. All right. Yeah. And that, that whole event is the event of perception. And you're ceasing to be distinct at every moment from the things you are perceiving. They are, this is, again, I think a, a good use of the knot entanglement idea. Mm. Uh, you know, you're getting snarled up in a different way on a different thing and you're, and you're ceasing to be exactly the thing you were. Like you're incorporating stuff from, literally incorporating stuff from the external world. Yeah, so and, this is, so, 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 something just occurred to me. Are you, in a sense, almost a Spinozist? Do you think what? really, well, that everything is one, is one thing in a certain sense? Yes, and I quote... what you just said really sounded like that almost. Yes. Like that, we're all in the same fabric. And that you're overstating the, you're overstating the individuation of these yes. two things. I want to melt it Typically. down. But I don't, I, I, I don't want to deny that there are individuals, <clears throat> that I exist, for example. But I exist as a set of relations and interactions. And I exist, <clears throat> I, in my existence, I'm being continuously compromised, continuously penetrated. You know, continuously stuff is falling away from, is, is ceasing to be part of me and becoming part of me. Like it's a very volatile process and I'm definitely not distinct from my environment in a million ways that are accumulating continuously. And that's what it's like to be a human being, like in perception of the world, not like sitting there watching a screen of images or whatever, you know? And I think that's really where that's one that's, so I'm rejecting the representational theory of mind not exactly the way Rorty does not exactly the way Wittgenstein does either uh no not at all yeah. I mean Wittgenstein's rejection of it is basically on the basis of the private language argument I mean I yes mean, and yours is a, this is not a bad argument no it's very good but I mean yours is I don't think I've heard it anywhere else um this strikes me as good original um thanks um um it's it's sort of my basic idea in a lot of ways yeah no I, and it's the represent it makes you realize. I mean, it's this is not original, and that is that a lot of people have said one of the reasons we've had so much trouble with perception is that the damned enlightenment philosophers fixated upon the visual modality, 
Sure. If you used smell, you'd never make this mistake because right. they're actual particles of the thing enter your freaking nose. Yes, exactly. You don't, you don't make a picture. <clears throat> um, right. And the same thing with tactile sensation. There's a much more obvious way in which <coughs> you're being penetrated and affected, right? Um, yes. Um, Change physically. The visual meta, the visual model is actually the worst one to sort of focus right. on, right? But it's um, not. But it's, it's. But it's actually the same. Kind but you're of, right. It's no yeah. different. Yeah. Once you un, you get it right, right? I, right. Mean, <laughs> I, I think so. Um, yeah. And I guess if we didn't have, you know, it's visual representation that most easily leads you into the representation mistake, the picture. Right. Perception is making pictures. Yes. Of course, um, yes, um, and then it doesn't work very well for the other sense modalities. No. I mean, I guess I think that the move in the 20th century was away <sighs> from pictures and into language, you know? Which is better. Uh, right, I, it's better in a number of ways, especially because it does recognize the centrality of the social, you know, and, 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 and communication among people. Uh, you know, so in Wittgenstein, for example, is, is a fine example of that, but also in Heidegger, or, you know, or even <clears throat> Mead or Dewey, you know. Yeah. Um, what I like is, I mean, here's, it's very meta, it's very metaphorical, but I like the way because you view, every, you can be penetrated in so many ways that you can even account for the social impact on the visual or audio perception because yes, they're all penetrating us. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> yes, I mean, and this is what's really gone. This is another thing that's gone wrong with the Western tradition. Like you really see it in Leibniz or something is like the sealing up of consciousness and, and, and like almost defending yourself. Like I am a real thing. I am an yeah. independent thing. I am yeah. one thing. Okay. But I don't think so, man. Like we are like a, community of things or like a and we're constantly being compromised <clears throat> and it's a damn good thing too like we, you know so we're not like these little egos or you know ha hang out in isolation or monads or whatever i mean i think that the basic leibnizian monad is leibniz you know like he's defending the integrity singleness of himself yeah descartes too you know in his way and i I think we got to let that go, man. Like, I don't think I, I think I am myself in virtue of the ways I'm being continuously compromised. Yeah. And yeah. that's typical of all energy <clears throat> in the universe. In the way. Yeah. No, no, yeah. I think that's, I think that's great. I mean, Thanks. I've always resisted this. I've always had a problem with this, this almost notion, like the mind is like a box and there's things in it. And, and, and like, it's just this whole, and, and you are like, speaking of photo and stuff. Yeah. That's, right? what, that's yeah. what it is. But I mean, yeah. and then all it does is produce problems that you then, that you then can't get out of. Um, Absolutely. Um, yeah. um, one thing that's sort of interesting though, is that, and I'm looking forward to when we do the second dialogue that we get to like the politics and stuff, because so much of what you do on that end seems so ruggedly individualistic. True. And yet, in your basic metaphysics, everything you've been emphasizing is interconnectedness. Yes. And I'm wondering whether, is that paradoxical, or is there a story that's going to get told that's going to link these two things together? There is a story. <sighs> yes, I hope there's a story. I want there to be a story. You're like, there better be a story, <laughs> too. And I'm going to make it up, man, over the weekend. But we next week, that. right? You're going to make it <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I, I love the American Transcendentalists on this, uh, Thoreau and Emerson. Uh, so that, you know, they are rugged individualists, the ruggedest, you know? Yeah, yeah. Canon. 
but they're also <clears throat> so into the self in relation. Social, yeah. social consciousness and environmental yes, consciousness. I mean, and, and, yeah. and throw, yeah. you know, his self is created in his, out of the natural, but also the social world. But, you know, his connections to the natural world are for him what makes him him. You know? And so I'm, I'm also going to hold on to the reality of individuals, but they have to be conceived, we have to be conceived relationally and in this kind of continuous compromise, but not only with one another. You know, I, I'm kind of a, a fairly loner type of person. I live very rural and stuff like this. And I feel like my relation to the environment near my house is just as real and just as, um, you know, at, and significant to me as my human relationships are almost, you know, or that sounds really fucked up. All right. Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I, yeah. You feel, you feel very little discontinuity between. So if you're in an urban environment, an urban social environment, a lot of people say you're in New York or. In, yeah. Or, my girlfriend lives in Philly. Like I'm down there a lot. So you don't feel a great discontinuity between that experience than being out at your house, out in the middle of a huge space it feels differently. It feels different, but I don't feel that the, I, I feel I exist in both contexts and I exist relationally in both contexts, but that doesn't relieve me of the burden of individuality or the burden of being myself. I mean, one thing I could say is like, I, again, like I'm the only person that has these social relations to these people. I'm, and also these relations to my garden or, you know, the trees in my yard or the grass or something like that. You know what I mean? Like all those things are enhancements in a way of my individuality, even as they are also compromises, even as they also compromise it. Uh, so, so yeah. So, yeah. And, and I don't want to front load it because we're going to talk, have a full dialogue on this, but it sounds to me, I mean, I liked one of your expressions when you, when you talk about, you know, your belief in sort of a, a very rigorous liberty is that we've got to unleash individuals. We've got to, you know, let, let them go out and see what they're going to do. Right. I mean, and, and that's not inconsistent with no. those individuals being created out of complex relationships to others. Definitely. And um, I think that coercion and stuff compromises in many ways, you know, the genuine interactions of individuals and the ways that they could compromise each other. I yeah. mean, although coercion, I guess is a way of compromising <clears throat> in itself, but it reduces like the authenticity or it, con it constrains interactions to these kind of rigid or mechanical modes that don't fully allow for the, you know, development of individuality and expression. Yeah. Yeah. And so don't allow for the full development of the social. Yeah. I, I actually thought that one could take that your view in these areas and very much apply the sort of reasoning that Mill gives it on liberty to it. Um, 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 I love that book. Yeah. 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 Um, but we will talk, like I said, we'll talk about that next time. Let's <laughs> talk a little bit about, um, about uh, as a last thing, let's talk about uh, justification and warrant. Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to say what the standard traditional view is, and then I want you to say what your view is. So, and and yeah. obviously, if you want to qualify what I say, please do. So the standard traditional view is the tripartite theory of knowledge, which says that to know something is to believe it, to have a good reason for believing it, and for it to be true. 
Mm -hmm. So the first is the belief condition, the second is the justification condition, and the third is the truth condition. <clears throat> now, the truth condition seems uncontroversial. It's, it's, it's weird. It, to the borders on ungramma ungrammatical to say that you can know something that's false. <clears throat> um, the, the belief... People do deny it, though. Yeah, I know, but... Yeah. Or they melt into justification is what they do. Yeah. Um, right. yeah. The belief condition some people have tried to uh, reject. Um, one yeah. could argue that Ryle rejects it, um, um, that you know, behaviorists reject it, depending on what you mean by the belief part. Yes. Um, but it's really the justification part that's been the most, most troublesome. People have done the most work on. Not that they haven't worked on truth, but they've worked on truth more in the philosophy of language than they have in epistemology. Yes. Um, so... You want to get rid of Warren. Indeed. <laughs> so maybe talk a little bit about why you want to get rid of justification as part of the conditions for knowing something. And then maybe a little bit about what view you're left with when you do right. get rid of Warren. Okay. Well, I mean, in part, <clears throat> I think it goes with this sort of anti-representationalism or anti-cognitivism that we were talk just talking about. Um, so my interactions with the world by which I come to know things about the world are not fundamentally representational or cognitive on my account. You know, so I, again, I have this direct perception view or whatever, however we want to describe that. So this is one way of thinking about this. I know the world continuously of necessity in virtue of being a creature in the, in the world um, and being responsive to the world. Whereas I think that this sort of justificationist picture of knowledge, which maybe derives from ultimately from Plato or something, um, is all about sort of this reconstruction of that immediate process into a far too intellectualized and completely unrealistic version of how, like it's not surprising that scholars and philosophers and bookish type people and professional reasoners believe that the way they come to know things is by running through arguments in their head. But I don't think that's the way we come to know most of what we come to know. I mean, I'll, uh, examples I use, say from J.L. Austin, right? I mean, Austin is really great on these kinds of issues, I think. Um, you know, like when you say, look, a pig, there's a pig, you know, and a pig's right in front of you, you know, and you're both looking at it squarely. That's a, that's a situation in which it's appropriate, it's inappropriate to demand a justification. And it, is, it would be appropriate to reject or wave off the demand for justification as showing that it's a condition on knowing. Okay, now, so let's, let's stick with that example for one second. I don't yeah. want to anymore. Is what you're saying that, obviously the reason I believe the, there's a pig is because I see it. Yeah. Is what you're denying that we should take the seeing of it as the, a reason for believing it? Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, it, it's not that that's completely inaccurate or something like that, or that that sounds crazy. It's that in general, we don't sit there reconstructing our experience into a series of sentences or arguments or justifications. Right. You, know, uh, you know, I don't, seeing the pig doesn't strike me immediately as a reason. It, it, to, 
seeing the pig would have to be reconstructed into some kind of linguistic item, right? In order to function as a reason in like a course of argument or in a justificatory activity. But that's just not how human beings operate in general. Now, the thing is like, it's not that I eliminate rationality or giving reasons or something as a totally, uh, you know, in, in, uh, you know, illegitimate activity or something like that. I treat justification in general as the attempt to show that the conceptual conditions on knowledge have been met. That is, in general, justification is activity that attempts to show that what you believe is true. Okay. And, so, that, and so it does support the claim to know in that it helps to establish the truth of the known claim. But the truth, truth is the goal of believing, the sole telos of believing, actually, in my view. Uh, and you've done as well as you can do with regard to any target claim or uh, if you believe it and it's true. Okay. And then justification is a way of perhaps sort of ex post uh, giving reasons to believe that the truth condition on knowledge has been met. So justifications in your view are at best sort of post hoc. If the truth of what's being of, of the belief that's being professed is challenged. Yes. <laughs> um, so I mean, justification so, could be a procedure for it, it might describe procedures for generating new true beliefs as well. Like, you know, in other words, you sort of have a scientific method in mind or a justificatory procedure that might lead you to new truths, but you would have met, you would have realized the goal of believing if you, with regard to any target claim, right. if you believe it and it's true. Right. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I'm, I'm not trying, I'm not meaning to be nitpicky. Um, I guess part of what I want to push though on is, are you saying then, hey, look, I'm not denying that people believe things for reasons. What I'm denying is that, is that reason should be identified with justifications. Right. Is, that, is that in a sense what you're saying? Um, <laughs> I don't think we, I don't think it's accurate to say or idiomatic to say that we <clears throat> always believe for reasons. Or that we believe only for reasons. No, but we generally well, hope that people believe for. I mean, in other words, you 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 mentioned skepticism, um, and, yeah. and certainly historically, the interest in philosophical interest in theories of justification has been in part because of the skeptical challenge. Definitely. And I and I agree that that's all a mess, and 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 I I. I well, a lot of that agree. challenge depends on this representationalism about the mind. Right, right? that's where yeah. Thomas Reed comes in and yeah. you talk about him. But <clears throat> it seems, especially today, we could also argue that there's another concern that might lead you to justification from a different place, and that is <clears throat> the concern with whether people have good reasons for the things they believe, because people believe a lot of fucking stupid shit, yeah. right? And so, and, 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 and we now have so many sources of influence that are such crap, right? Um, whether it's media outlets or whether it's, and so yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about the whole motivation behind the critical thinking movement, right? It's yes. like, it's not to respond to skepticism. 
Sure. It's because of, you know, in a sense of the, the sort of the Walter Lippmann universe that we come to live in, where we are, where so much of our beliefs are, are the, attempted to be manipulated by corporations, by governments, by people. And, and you know, yeah. you have to ask, what, the, what are your actual reasons, right? Do you think that's a different question and a different conception of reason than the philosophical? That's what I'm trying to get at. Okay, well, I'm very worried about that yeah. second problem. Yeah, I'm not yeah. worried about skepticism at all. Right. But I'm yeah, worried about people believing stuff for shitty reasons. Yes. Well, I, but I would also, I get worried about uh, epistemological imperialism in this regard, too. Explain. So, yeah. So what I would say is, like, for example, you know, say climate change, okay? Mm -hmm. You get to the point where, first of all, you're dividing groups by who believes what <clears throat> and how. Whereas, and actually, most of both groups are believing on sheer authority, as a matter of fact, okay? And you're delegitimizing, you know, what, whole regions of the country, right. genders, races, income groups, and yeah. so on, on the basis of what? Some kind of like strict scientism or something like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're, you're speaking to sort of this, this counter tendency. Yes, to epistemically reject people in politics, right? Yes. So it's like, you know, all those tr all those people who voted for Trump, they voted right. for bad well, reasons. They voted right. for bad reasons. Right, I, right. I agree and, and with guess you. guess what? Yeah. They, they think that, you know, that people <laughs> voted for Clinton for <laughs> bad reasons. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I agree. I was I'm, not not saying it's all, I'm not saying it's all equal. Yeah. But I'm also, I'm also saying that I have deep suspicions when, you know, the, the legitimating justificatory activities are conceived by dominant groups as disqualifying other groups. Yeah. yeah. I also think that the scientism and stuff of the left right now is really kind of absurd, man. Yeah, like, I agree you know, with Like, that. they're going to hit you with, do you accept science? Right. Well, uh, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, I don't. And it, that would be unscientific to do that. I don't really know what that even means, <laughs> but I, right. but completely I'm committed to the truth. Like I think we need to get to the truth and whatever procedures lead to that are the good procedures and whatever procedures lead you away from that are the bad procedures. And, you know, so I wouldn't, you know, if you're engaged in a whole big conspiracy theory world or something like that, I think there are very clear ways to, you know, or, the, or the, there are ways to critique that. But I'm also worried about structures of epistemic power. And I mean, especially as they're playing right now. Because that I, sounds very Foucaultian of you. Yeah, yes, <laughs> I have Foucault's picture up mine, actually. Precisely. Yeah. I actually like him the best, probably, of most of the Continentals. Um, Me too. Um, um, the archaeology of the human sciences is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, this one in Punish is great. Uh, yeah, um, so... That, and that's about knowledge and power, you know. So, and I agree with you about all that. I, 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 there's a kind of cheat... Look, I'm a classical liberal, if you ask me what my sort of political orientation is. Um... And I probably, if you ask me why, I'd say because it's, it's better, it's 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 the least worst, right? I mean, it's like a sim I give a similar answer to, to Churchill's answer on democracy, right? I mean, um, I have a lot of sympathy with the position too. Um, but but, and so there is a kind of way that 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 people on the left now sort of use a kind of epistemic, <clears throat> warrant-based critique of their political opponents that I think is really uh, sleazy. 
yes. and 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 either disingenuous or or really ignorant. Um, but I do retain a kind of a worry about, in a nonpartisan way, yeah, about the kind of, in my view, very Lipman-esque universe that we live in, um, um, and where I think it really is. I mean, what I see in my students is sort of alarming, right? Um, and, and a lot of stuff they believe like is a lot of stuff they believe is left-wing stuff. I mean, you know, I mean, right. you know, yeah. you know, I mean, no, I've, I had, I've had I've had crazy art discussions with students about whether we live in a rape culture, and you know, I can show them crime statistics going back forty years till I'm blue in the face. It makes no difference, right? And so, at a very mundane level, I'm very concerned about the reasons people right. think believe things. And whether the reasons are what, any what, good. What, what do we mean when we say we live in a rape culture, though? That's where the that's also kind of hopeless to get. I mean, to get any clarity right. from them on this, right? Is, Although I think there might be something to be said for that. Actually, <sighs> there but, might yeah. be if they could articulate it yes. in a way that's you know. But anyway, so so I am so so I, aside from the problems of skepticism, I'm worried at a yeah. more mundane level about yes. the reasons. And it doesn't. So you're. Not, it sounds to me like you're saying you're really not going after reasons in that sense. I don't. You know, I flirt with irrationalism. I don't think we're as rational as we think we are. Like a romanticist uh, style, like a sort kinda, of. A, yeah, Kierkegaard. <sighs> uh, you know, like I, I, I'm a lot about the limits of reason, and uh, the arrogance of reason, and. You know that you can't live a life based on reason. Things so like more than Hume, you go farther than Hume in terms uh, of your resistance to reason. Well, it's somewhat it's somewhat <clears throat> different than Hume, at least. I mean, I think he he's basically right about human reason is non motivating and primarily things like that. But um, on the other hand, I don't want to just I, I don't want to abandon myself into total irrationalism, and I think. <clears throat> To the extent that rational procedures lead you to, toward the truth, they are worthy of pursuit within areas in which that's appropriate. You know, um, but you know, I'm very resistant to kind of scientism and yeah, over the overweening uh, rationalism that I see sort of marked in these justificatory uh, theories of knowledge and so on. Um, but by the same token, and when I first put this forward in the early '90s, this delete delete the justification condition thing. I was very concerned to say like, it's no more irrationalist than its opponents because it puts everything on truth. And then we use justificatory procedures or whatever are things that lead us to that goal or whatever. But actually there is an undertow of questioning the, you know, the right, the, the privileging of rationality as the only source of knowledge or the primary source of knowledge. I, I, there are areas in which I very strongly agree with that, especially in ethics. Yeah. Um, um, I think rationalist ethics is just, is, is one of the worst mistakes we've made since enlightenment <laughs> is sort of rationalist ethics. I mean, and I've actually, it's funny. I feel my, like I'm, I'm adopting a, 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 a devil's advocate position. Cause I mean, I've, I've, I've written huge essays arguing against excessive rationalism. So Small R yeah. rationalism. So I mean, I I, I feel you. Um, I should read those. Um, but I yeah. just I I um. You especially, given your rugged individualism and independence, I would think would really resent 
the sort of the very Huxleyan efforts to manipulate people's uh, beliefs, attitudes, tastes, both by sort of marketers and by politicians. And so I was a little yes. surprised at but, seeing your resistance to well, a certain I'm a kind of epistemic gatekeeping. Um, uh, you know right. what I mean? Well, but I'm, I, I, yes, but I'm not that worried about it, at least for myself in a way. Like, I think like people commonly overrate how susceptible people are to advertising. Really? Propaganda. Really? Yeah, basically, yeah. Like, I mean, like, that's interesting. I, Why? I go through like hundreds of advertisements every day. Yeah, but <laughs> like, you are not I'm typical. You don't think you're typical, uh, do you? I don't think I'm atypical in that regard. I mean, you know, no American isn't barraged continuously with advertising, and no American doesn't cock an eyebrow usually. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, we're not all just suckers or whatever, you know? Uh, and I mean, I guess if you're in a North Korean indoctrination regime, you might have some pretty distorted beliefs. But even there, I'm not that convinced that there, that most North Koreans aren't just sitting, you know, going like, what oh, the God, fuck this are crazy, they This crazy about? fuck again. Yeah, right? this, this bullshit again? <laughs> like, whatever. And then you just go like, uh, you know, we'll just get through it somehow. You know, it's more of this. Now, <clears throat> That's pretty hilarious. You know, but of course, it, it runs the other way too. I don't know. I'm definitely, <clears throat> I'm worried you, about the present moment in terms of, reinforcing the gatekeeping or something, which just sounds like this kind of censorship regime to me. You're more worried about the gatekeeping effort to resist the manipulation yeah. than you are about the manipulation. That's true. That's something maybe we could discuss another time that's really interesting because I've been worrying a lot about manipulation, but, you know, it sounds to me almost like you say, like, you know, that's a very dangerous, seductively dangerous way of thinking because it leads you to the epistemic dismissal yes. of your opponents. And, and I mean, I, I, and, and the attempt to control them. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, um, so just from a technical philosophical perspective a little bit, I mean, <clears throat> I've, uh, some of what you said reminded me almost of like a Goldman-esque theory of a uh, causal theory of knowledge. Yes. And maybe this isn't very important, but I always thought that that was a theory of warrant, just a very different kind. Right. Right. Um, maybe this is just what we call things, but I mean, are you really not offering a theory of warrant or are you just offering a non-internalist or non-inferentialist theory yes. of warrant? I don't know That's if it matters that much, but... but Yeah, I, I know. And I'm a little unclear about that in my own mind. You know what I mean? Like you could... Yes, I, I, I would be sympathetic to a Goldman causal type of theory. So just to uh, say what that is, that, that the idea is that... <clears throat> um, what makes what makes something what makes a belief knowledge is if it is causally connected to the truth maker in a right in the right, right. way, yes. Um, and it was introduced to get us get us out of Gettier style problems, yes. which most of the audience will know what that is since I've mentioned Gettier a lot. But I'll yeah. put a link to it. Yeah. Um, so, so you're sympathetic right. broadly to a view like that. Yeah, I mean, I have a, a lot to say in qualification of that or in some counterexamples to that kind of view. But yeah, I mean, broadly, that's much closer to my idea of how knowledge is derived, you know. But now, you don't think, think that that's warrant. That uh, that's that's, a, that's no, a theory of justification. The causal process itself is not a warrant, right? It, it can possibly it can be reconstructed into something that I would regard as a justification. Like you could reconstruct it into a textual account of how you came to believe in a reliable or a causally direct or whatever it is way. 
Um, I don't really think that that is a theory of justification exactly. So Although, you don't treat it as a criterion for knowing yes. something. Yes. You do or you don't. Um, it is a criterion. Because like, if it's like, a criterion for knowing something, then that's a theory of justification, isn't it? All right. So if I'm wondering whether you know something or not, I might press you for your reasons. Okay. Even if I have my theory of knowledge. And I might use the fact that you give good reasons as a, you know, uh, like an indication that you do know. Um, okay. But it's, it's not one of the conceptual conditions on knowing. Oh, uh, so you don't yeah. think it's a criterion. In order for S I, to know P, it's not a criterion that S be properly causally connected to P. No. Okay. I don't think, well, look, 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 it depends on what we mean by criterion. The one use of the term criterion is like something much more loose than a conceptual condition. So like, like you say, like, uh, it's a criterion for something being gold that it yields a certain taste when bitten. Okay. Now that's not part of the conceptual conditions on something being gold. You know, it's, it's you know, it, ha it has a certain atomic uh, weight or whatever, then it's gold. And, you know, if you had different taste buds or someone else might taste something different or whatever. But it is an indication, a rough indication that something is gold. Same with often with a warrant in terms of uh, knowledge. Like, okay, that's a pretty good account. Yeah, you know, I, I seems like you do know that. But that's not a matter of meeting the conceptual conditions on knowledge, I guess. Okay, oh, okay. Account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that makes sense. I mean... This is why I kept running up against, does he actually have a system? Or, or <laughs> is it a system that consists of a lot of very non-systematic positions, right? I mean, yeah, well, uh, <laughs> wait, well, they are, there are a lot of non-systematic positions or anti-systematic positions, but, you know, sadly, they all kind of tie up together, I hope, or anyway, you know, like they, yeah. they, they, they're connected. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... We've been going, I think, almost two hours. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to stop only because I just there's a limit to what the audience will take. Um, we're going to do another one, and we're going to do it on the stuff on values. However, I do at the beginning of the next one, there's one thing I didn't get to, and that's the stuff on GE Moore and Wittgenstein, which okay, I really sure. want to get to. <laughs> because I actually think that Moore and Wittgenstein agree with each other. <clears throat> I think that oh, Wittgenstein, I, I think that uncertainty is in a sense a development of Moore's ideas. Okay, I better go reread re -read uncertainty too. Um, um, so if you don't mind, I'd like to start 15 minutes with that at the beginning of next time before we get to the normative okay. dimension, if you don't mind. Um, Sounds good. And, um, well, I really thank you. Again, for the audience, the book is entanglements by crispin sartwell and you should buy it um because it's really good <laughs> um it's 95 dollars i mean i know it's 95 dollars, but you know what you spend that much on some stupid pair of air jordans man <laughs> um um <laughs> um when we hang up this call you and i will figure out when we're going to do the next one all right good um so uh, thank you I very much it, man. This was good. i love it i love i love doing these um cool. and so uh, i can see why <laughs> it's fun it comes through um let me uh so let's uh, say goodbye to the audience and then uh we'll see you all next time all right thanks for listening to meaning of life tv you can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter.
You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.